Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. So we continue in our study of this powerful book. Our study is entitled Freedom because that is the theme of Galatians. That the gospel itself that God has promised to us and has delivered to us is not only what sets us free from our own guilt and sin, but it is also what sets us free to live our lives. Something we desperately desire and something we are not constantly in need of is the freedom that comes by the grace of our God. This morning our text will begin in verse 15, and it's, a, it's an important text. It's also a very packed text, so we will need for the Lord to clearly be at work with us so that we can gain benefit. So let's go to him now as we uh, to pray that he would give us enlightenment. Father, we give you thanks that you have not only gathered us here, but in gathering here, as we offer our praise to you, you also give far more to us. You've given us your word through which we may understand more of ourselves and more of you and the way things work and the way things are to be or ought to be in this world. We pray now that you would open our ears, that we might hear your grace and truth, that from our hearing that you, by your Spirit, would grant us understanding in our minds and that you would shape our hearts to receive it. That we might not only be those who know and have heard and can spout out truth of doctrine, but that we would be shaped by the very grace of the gospel that you have given and as it is intended. Father, work by your Spirit through this word as we commit to it now, not only that you would be honored by lives that are more and more conformed, that we would rejoice as we see your love at work within us and among us. Bless us, Lord, that we might be a blessing to others. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God 
through faith. The word of the Lord, may he bless us and grant us understanding. I am a mechanical moron. Now that does not prevent me from posing with the typical male posture at times. For instance, last fall when my car was repeatedly stalling, I did what every guy is supposed to do. I got out, opened the hood, looked at the engine as if I knew what I was looking for. <laughs> Saw there was a battery, so I knew that wasn't the problem. Bunch of other things, didn't seem to be any gaping holes I'd never noticed before, so closed the, the, the uh, hood and got back in and Lo and behold, the car would start. I assumed I just kind of scared it into submission. But um, as the problem repeated and then became on a regular cycle, I would be stalled at the same spot for the same length of time. I realized there was probably something else. I took it in and was told that it was a computer glitch, so bringing in a whole new level of my incompetence. But once that was fixed, then the, the car worked. Whenever I try to build or fix things, there are certain one or more of the following are certainly going to happen. There will be one, pieces left over, and two, the thing still won't work. And often it's probably both. And even on those occasions when I do manage to get something working, I don't gain the same satisfaction that many of you who are mechanical engineers or even eight-year-olds who are far more astute than I am. Because even when it's working, I realize I have absolutely no idea what I did. I couldn't do it again on purpose, and whatever it was was just luck. And so there is no, no satisfaction that I gain. But a lot of times when I'm trying to work on things and they don't work and the frustration begins to set in, I become convinced or at least have this feeling that the, the item, this inanimate object, has decided that it is against me. It has something against me and conspires with all its parts just to cause me frustration. Now, of course, those of you who have any aptitude whatsoever realize that my ineptitude is, is obvious. And the reason for that is mechanics are not anything personal. Mechanics are simply mechanics. Everything has a place. And therefore, if there are parts left over, something is not in place. But if everything has a place, and everything is in its place, and everything is in the proper place, then things will work. I mean, that's just a simple understanding of mechanics, and that any of you who have any gift or even normal common sense are probably uh, aware. But I also realize this principle doesn't apply only to mechanics. It certainly also applies to spiritual things and theological things. I realize when I come to a text like we are looking at this morning that many of you feel a lot like I do when I'm looking at an engine. Just kind of overwhelmed. There are certain things that you recognize and we're going to be looking at this passage and we're just full of concepts like covenant and law and promise and grace and gospel and slavery and freedom and many of the words you understand, many of them you've heard before whether you have a real understanding of what they mean or certainly how they work together, that can be a little confusing. It can seem a little overwhelming. And you may feel a lot like I do when I'm talking to a mechanic. Now, I've taken my car to Dalton, and Dalton and Chris do a great job explaining things, but here's what I tend to do. I, I listen intently until I hear a word that I recognize, and then I nod like I know what he's talking about. And I think to myself, I'm never going to get this, 
but I trust Dalton. And as long as Dalton knows what he's doing, and I trust Dalton, then I will be fine. And I suspect that there are some who are here that as we look at this text, and maybe even a lot of uh, as we look at Galatians, you're hearing all these words and they sound familiar and yet it can still seem rather daunting. And you might assume, well, as long as the pastors know, I'll be fine. We'll just kind of endure this time. Maybe I can pick up some stories, some words, or a few definitions that will help. My hope this morning is that we would do more than that. My hope this morning is that I can do for you what no mechanic has succeeded in doing for me which is to unpack the complexity that is before us in this particular passage, identify some of the key concepts so that we're all essentially on the same page, we know what they are, and then show how they fit together. And the reason for that is because it really does make a difference. It really matters significantly. It makes it all the difference in the world when we understand that there is a place for both promise and law, but each has their part. And that our lives are significantly changed when we know how things fit together. And so as Paul looks at this particular passage, he illustrates some difficult concepts here. And really, this passage itself outlines, lays an outline really for itself that is easy to follow, even illustrates it. And as we look at this, we're going to look at it in a couple of ways. There are two broad points that Paul deals with. The first thing that he tries to help us to understand is that the law never uh, the law never annuls or supersedes the promise. And then second, he takes some pains to help us to understand that the law actually serves the promise. And in that part that we see, Paul asks and anticipates and then asks a, a, a couple of very practical questions. What's the law for? And is the law contrary to the promise of God? And then he wraps it up with an illustration of a guardianship or of, of a, a tutor and shows how all those things work together as the law actually serves the promise, which leads us into the presence of Christ where we can build our lives with things in their proper place. It's important that we understand that in their proper place, this is a freeing and rejoice-compelling message. In their wrong place, this is an overbearing, discouraging text. We need to remind, be reminded over and again that grace and legalism or grace and religion produce two entirely different kinds of people, two entirely different kinds of life. They are not different expressions of Christianity. They are different religions entirely. So let's look what Paul has to say to us as we consider first verses 15 through 18, what Paul has to say when he tells us this, that the law never annuls the promise. Paul, as he's writing this, he's addressing the, the Judaizers, the people who had been part of the church, the people who had infiltrated or grown in their presence in the church in Galatia, people who were influencing others. He has them in mind and those who are being influenced, and he's essentially saying to them, you who tend to make life about yourselves. You who have assumed that your relationship with God is about your performance. You need to understand that the law never supersedes, never replaces the promise of the gospel. As he's writing these words, he has in mind people the Judaizers, people who have essentially said that it really does depend on you. If you do A, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z, 
then not only will things go well for you, but God will really, really like you. It just matters of how you live your life. Now, we consider a word like Judaizers and realize how foolish that seems to be, and we don't talk about Judaizers in, in our culture, but we do. I think all of us have some temptation towards some form of legalism or moralism, and rather than necessarily hanging our standards on a biblical principle, we just establish certain moral standards or behavioral standards and assume that if we follow them, God likes us. If we follow them, we are better than the people that don't follow those standards and that God likes us better. Paul is addressing us who have any temptation or, any, or, or have been influenced by that. And I think he's addressing another kind of person that we don't hear or address much. It's the supplementalist. Now, if that word is new to you, it's perhaps because I think I made it up over the weekend. But that person is, what I mean by that person is the person who doctrinally fully understands that it's about grace, it's about what God does for us. And they know that their right standing before God is totally because of what Jesus has done for us. There's no question in their mind about that. So they are resting upon that, but then because they perform, they must say, well, then God must really like me because I have grace and all of my behavior as opposed to those other people who just have grace. It's a subtle and yet a common issue that inflicts all of us. And so the question is not to point fingers and say, okay, who are these verses describing? The question is, in what way does it describe me? And with that understanding, Paul then begins in verse 15, and he said, let me take an example from everyday life. And he talks about a, a human covenant or a man-made covenant, at least as it's expressed in the ESV. Now, the word covenant is important for us to understand. It's used throughout the scriptures. It's here for a reason. A covenant, we tend to think of as like a contract that we enter into, but a covenant is far more. The best description, a definition I've heard was from theologian O. Palmer Robertson, who says that a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Now, that's not the kind of definition that we throw out in our normal conversation, but it is helpful for us when we consider it. Because the whole idea that it's a bond in blood tells us the seriousness of entering into a covenant. When we break a contract, contracts are entered into by two parties. If one party or the other breaks the contract, the other person is free to walk away. Many contracts even have written in there stipulations of a buyout. What will be the penalty if you walk away from this? And people consider how much it was going to cost and whether it's worth for them to remain in a contract or if it would be better for them to break the contract, they pay that price. A covenant essentially tells you that there is a buyout price as well. When you enter into a covenant and you fail in your covenant, you, by saying it's a bond in blood, that's what a covenant is, you are saying, here's the buyout price. If I fail, if I walk away from this covenant, I forfeit my life. It's not just a penalty. You deserve to die if you walk away from a covenant. So the word here is significant for us to understand. Paul's saying, let's talk about human covenants, which are a little more like contracts as opposed to those that are made with God. And the Greek word here is diatheke that has the connotation of like a last will and testament. It's a human covenant that he, he's talking about here. It's something that the people that Paul was writing to would understand just as we understand because wills and last wills and testaments, they're a part of everyday life. Some of them are pretty straightforward. Some of them are pretty bizarre. Some of them are simple. Some of them are complex. So I was reading on different kinds of wills or interesting wills or, or bizarre wills. It was two that struck my, caught my attention or one that led me to another. One was a, a lady uh, who left her $13 million fortune to her cat 
that she had picked up. She was a very lonely lady, which I can imagine, and she didn't have any family. And she picked up the stray cat, loved the cat for a few years, and decided since she had no family, she would leave the 13 million to the cat. And the caretaker who would take care of her and who fed her cat would be able to continue to be the caretaker for the cat. And as I was reading about this and thinking the inevitable, this is just really, really weird. One of the things that the article uh, for the ABC News had, had published uh, indicated is this didn't even make this cat the richest pet in the world. There actually is a German shepherd named Gunther IV, who is the richest dog in the world. While the cat inherited 13 million, Gunther IV is worth $373 million. Who did Gunther IV inherit his money from? His father, Gunther III. Apparently, the German man who loved Gunther III left all of his money to Gunther III. The man died as the will was being uh, executed. Uh, Gunther III died unexpectedly, leaving all of his will, all of his inheritance to his only living son, Gunther IV. And so this dog now inherits $373 million. Now, we think of these things and realize how ridiculous and how bizarre they are. And the reason that I use these is because it brings attention out. It is absolutely ridiculous to leave, well, anything to a cat. And yet, there is something in us as we understand the nature of wills that you do not violate the wishes of the person who's leaving the gift, even when it's stupid, even when you disagree. If they were of sound mind and body, which I know it seems questionable here, then our culture, sense of right, says you do not do anything other than the wishes of the people. And Paul is appealing to that very kind, same sentiment here when he's pulling this out. Let's talk about human, uh, take a human example of man-made covenants. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the Roman understanding, the same as our understanding, is that when a will is made, that it doesn't get changed. You don't change it unless you're the one who is the giver, the guarantor, or the, the grantor, in which case, it's possible to change your will, to either change what somebody receives or to take somebody else out of the will. And you alone are able to do that. But once it is set and once you have passed, wills are not to be changed at all. But even more strict is that the idea that Paul is dealing with here is that many of them would have had a Greek mindset that was different than the mindset that while the Roman and English mindset is, it would be very unusual and very difficult to change a will. The Greek mindset is once a will is written and signed, once the lawyer signs it, it does not change. You can't even change your own will while you're living. Once it's done, it is done. It is final. And so Paul's bringing up this image to the people saying, let's, let's understand something that you deal with in everyday life. And the nature of a will, its very nature, is that it's a gift. It's something that is given that is not earned. And something that Theoretically, you could lose, but once a promise, once it is enacted, it is carried out. And Paul says, look, if that's true from a human covenant standpoint, then how much more with a divine covenant? God, who does not change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You need to understand, as Paul was saying, is the promises were given by God. And it's just like a human covenant. 
Once it was given, it does not change. It is nothing comes and changes the tenants. God who doesn't change, and even the idea that nothing itself will ever change. And it's important for us to understand that, not just so that we get our doctrine straight, but so that we can understand and relate to God. Because even many believers just seem to have this and live with this idea that somehow God's covenants, as we look throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that somehow God's covenants are in opposition or in conflict with one another. Or at the very least, that God just changes his mind over time and has changed his plan. And so we you know, might think that, oh, it used to be an issue of faith, but then God gave us the law, so it was about obedience. Then we couldn't follow the law, so then it was about sacrifice. But now that Jesus has come, it's all about grace. And that we somehow think that those things are just a shift and a change. And, and we wonder if we can keep up with whatever God happens to be done, doing right now except that what Paul is expressing here, which is the truth that permeates the entirety of the Bible, is that there is one covenant that runs from beginning to end, or at least one covenant that runs from the time that God evicted Adam and Eve from the garden and made a promise to them that we can read about in Genesis 3.15 that he would provide through their line one who would redeem them, one who would save them from their own sin, from their oppression, from the circumstances that they had plunged themselves into. There is somebody that would come. And the promise that was given to Adam and Eve is actually the same promise that is given to Abraham. When God came along later and spoke with Abraham, he didn't come up with a new promise. All he did was bring more clarity to the promise that he'd already given. And he had promised that he would, through them, bless the nations and that they themselves would be set free. If you were to go back and check into Genesis 12, where God is being specific about the promise that he had made, You'll notice there that God says in that short period of time, seven different times he says, I will. The nature of the covenant, the promise that God has given is about what God will do. And the fact that it's repeated seven times means that God is very serious about it. So therefore, we need to recognize that the foundation of our faith and even the grid of our faith is rooted on the promise of God, and that is something that is not changing. Now, one of our problems is we get so focused on our own job descriptions. What is it I need to do? What is it I'm supposed to do? What is it that God expects of me? That we lose sight or we no longer pay much attention to what God promised and to what God did. And so then when we come years later, and Paul refers to that here when he says 430 years later, which is not reflection of the time between Abraham and the giving of the law to Moses. It actually is the same number reflecting the time that God's people were in slavery. And so really there was a longer period of time between the promise given to Abram, to which Paul is appealing, and when the law had come. But we tend to look at that, look at our responsibility, and we think, okay, well now God has now made the promise conditional on our behavior. Except if you consider the very preamble to the law God had given to Moses in the first place. If you make note of this, you don't need to turn there because I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But consider what God says in Exodus chapter 22, right before he actually gets into the Ten Commandments. Here's what God says. I am the Lord your God who has delivered you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who has delivered you. And then he moves on and he gives the law. Well, what? Now, we all know that, except I believe most of us tend to hear it this way. I am the Lord your God who can deliver you out of slavery. Here's my rules. 
here's my expectations, you do these, and I will deliver you. We turn the promise into conditional in our minds, even when we read the words that are very familiar to us. The promise has already been given and accomplished because it depends wholly on God. And the law is given to us in order to help us to know how to live. And when we look at the law and we live in line with what God wants, but with the freedom that God's given us, we just recognize that law is not a burden placed upon us, but an expression of God's love anyway. It changes our whole attitude and perception of the law. God does not say, do these things and I will deliver you. God says, it's based on the promise. And I deliver on my promises, and I have delivered my promises. And to you and to me who are on this side of the cross, he's saying, I've delivered you through Christ. You are delivered. It's not about your performance. It's about my promise. Then Paul moves on and he explains something else. After he's very clear to us that the law that was given never supersedes, never replaces, never annuls the promise, Paul then goes on to answer a question that many of us have, the functional question of our lives. And he says, in short, the law was given to serve the promise. And Paul, as he's speaking here, He's reminding us that the law itself is given as an expression of grace to prepare us for the promise. The reason that we need to understand that, we need to remember that the law prepares us for the promise, is because it's been said that we as Christians tend to look like a drunk trying to ride a horse. We're always falling off on one side or the other. On one side we fall off, which is the people who are Christians who, who believe and live, it's promise minus law as if there is no place for the law. It's just only about promise. The theological word is antinomian, means against the law. They have no use for the law. You fall off the side there, which only believes promise, but then just kind of ignores the law entirely. We fall off the horse into, or off the cliff in, into one error. But the other side of that are the people who have, believe in the law minus promise, and what they have is a gospelless religion. They have no hope. Therefore, if they're consistent with what they believe, they should have no basis for joy, and they absolutely have no freedom because they have now bound themselves to a set of standards that God says, don't do your best. He says, be perfect, be holy. If you break the law at any point, you're guilty of breaking the entirety of the law. In other words, if you are gossiping, you are the same as the person who is marauding, thieving, raiding, killing, slaughtering. You're not the same in terms of economically, but, you know, the wage of sin is death. Dead is dead. Some of you have seen The Princess Bride and you understand the concept of mostly dead versus dead dead, but there is no Princess Bride in the, in the real, real life. There is no mostly dead. We are dead in our sin, incapable of anything. And that is true when we break the law, when we ignore the law, or when we're trying to keep the law. Paul in this passage is reminding us that we are a people that are called to do both, that we stand on the promise and in line with the law, that we base our lives and our relationship with God on the promise that God has given to us and given to us in Christ. And yet we are aware of the holiness of God that every aspect of the law points us to, to show that God is different than us, above us, better than us. And yet we also realize that it's not by keeping the law, but by repentance and faith, which actually ironically leads us to the empowerment of obeying the law. It's a very confusing thing. I, I get, I understand how these things work together, and we're going to talk about that for a moment. 
And I know some of you, as we've been going through this series, have probably squirmed in your seats because it seems like I'm giving not only no place to the law, but pointing my finger at those of you who are trying your best to behave. And I get uncomfortable with that as well. One, there's a statement that was made by Martin Lloyd-Jones a generation ago that kind of reinforces or at least gives me some comfort. Because one of the things that Lloyd-Jones says is that if you're never open to the charge of antinomianism, in other words, being against the law, then you're actually not proclaiming the gospel. And there's truth in that. Because the gospel, the promise, is so free and so glorious and so amazing that it sounds like we're saying there's no place for the law. Paul, though, knowing that that's our natural instinct, anticipating the question, verse 19 says, why then the law? I mean, why did God give us the law? What's the purpose of the law? And to understand what Paul says here, it's important that we understand a couple of concepts. First of all, it's important that we understand there's different types of the law that we find in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. There is the civil law, which was given specifically to Israel, as they were the only nation on the history of the earth that was a true theocracy under the living and true God. It was marked as belonging to them. And so God gave them specific ways in which they were to live their lives and the punishments for the violation of the laws within their society. When Israel no longer existed, then that law also went. It no longer was binding. Now, we're told through scripture that the general wisdom that that law reflected should and is reflected in any civilized society. But that law that was specific civil case laws, here's the crime, here's the punishment, that was specifically given to Israel, fulfilled by Christ. There's a ceremonial law, the, worship, the, the washing and the cleansing and the purifying yourself that also involved the sacrificial system and preparation. Christ, who is the pure and final sacrifice, fulfills that as well. So that as we are trusting in Christ, as we are resting in Christ, as we're believing in Christ, we're actually fulfilling the, both the civil and the ceremonial law because it's all embodied in him. It pointed to him, it's embodied in him, he perfectly fulfilled it all. And then the third aspect is the moral law, which is really what Paul has in mind here, although the Judaizers were also trying to bring in some of the ceremonial law back in as well. But the moral law of how we live summarized in the Ten Commandments. And this is where people get confused, one, because they're not recognizing the distinctions of the law, and the moral law continues and will always continue because it is a clear reflection of the holiness of God and therefore his expectations because it's the way life is meant to live. But why the law? Even if we understand there's different and we can kind of understand how two of them are not brought to bear, certainly the thou shalts and thou shalt not still are important to us, aren't they? And they are. But Paul also explains here, and we're going to understand it more after I explain this, is that there are theologians called the three uses of the law. And we need to understand that the law needs to be used properly because otherwise you are putting together your life based on the law in the same way that I would put together an engine. Even if I could use all of the parts, they're not going to be where they belong, and therefore it is not going to work, and probably tragedy is going to strike. Many of us live our lives with that very kind of tragic. We need to understand that the first use of the law is that it points us to the holiness of God. Every piece of the law reflects the character of God. What we need to ask ourselves when we are reading the law is, what is this telling me about God in order for us to gain some benefit from it? The second use of the law is to break us and to drive us to the cross. In other words, when we see the law, 
and we're told that we need to keep it not just the best we can, but perfectly, we realize we can't keep it. We can't keep its demands. We can't keep its prohibit, uh, prohibitions. Therefore, we're guilty and deserve the punishment and have no hope because even if we can do better tomorrow, it doesn't make up for what we didn't do today or what we did today. We are hopeless, except that that drives us to the promise of Christ on the cross, who did keep it perfectly, who came in order to bear the punishment we deserve, that through believing in his punishment, we would be set free according to the promise. Having been set free, the law then shows us how we can have the most joy, bringing the most pleasure to those who are around us as well as to God, and to live our lives. The law guides us in the way we live. But when we fail it again, we're broken. When we see how pure God is, we realize we don't keep it in the way he calls us to. And there is a cycle, much like, as I understand, you're in your uh, car, your alternator. If that's functioning and all things go together, it's actually repowering your engine or your battery. <coughs> the law functions each part in its proper place. We recognize even more the love of God and the grace of God to give us the law in the first place, which sounds like an oxymoron. But it's only oxymoronic because we, many of us, live our lives with everything out of place and as if our lives depended on that law. Listen to what Paul says when, with the, uh, the understanding of the three uses of the law. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, meaning Moses. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one, meaning God is the one who is the executor. What Paul is telling us is that the law was given in order to put a label on what we are. The law labels us as being sinners. Listen to what Martin Luther says in his commentary to the Galatians about the purpose of the law. Luther says this, The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sins, and that by knowledge of their sins they may be humbled and terrified, bruised and broken, and by this means, may be driven to seek grace. See, what Paul is talking about in these verses and what Luther is elaborating on is what I call the second use of the law. The law shows us what we are. It gives us something to show what's broken in our lives so that we understand our need of grace so that the promise that God has made upon which our lives should revolve is actually something beautiful and valuable, and necessary. The question is, how does the use of the law relate to the way you use the law? The purpose of the law is to break us so that we know that we are in need of God's grace, but those who have legalist, moralist, and supplementalist mindsets use the law to feel better about themselves. Hey, look at all the rules that I keep. I'm better than you. They use it to isolate themselves from other people in the body of Christ because you don't keep the rules that I keep or you don't want anything to do with me because I don't keep the rules that you keep. 
There's no hint of the idea that the law is being used internally in its proper way to break us. We use it to justify ourselves and to elevate ourselves to others. And churches and youth groups are divided over this issue all the time because we either are in conflict and we separate or we live comfortably in division with some people who carry certain characteristics living over here and other people living in certain characteristics over here and with a very fragile unity within the body of Christ all because we are using the law in a way that it was never intended to be used in the first place. The law breaks us and shows us our need. And if I'm looking at the law and it keeps on showing me how messed up I am, whether I am actually less messed up than you or not, I don't have time and I don't have the energy or the inclination to be pointing out your issues, at least not in a condemning way. I can't even fix myself. We need to be adopting that mindset, realization that the law was given so that we realize we can't even fix ourselves. I am in desperate need of the gift that God, but thanks be to God that he has made a promise and fulfilled his promise in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to adopt that mindset because Christians who are broken by the law, no matter how much better they may be than others, they are driven to the cross where Christ becomes our identity and where Christ becomes our unity. Paul goes on and he asks the other question, then is the law contrary to the promises of God? And I hope that you would see the answer is no. It's not contrary to the promises of God. It came to serve the promise of God. We wouldn't know how valuable, important, and how much we need it unless the law had come. And Paul uses an illustration here in the rest of the verses, beginning in verse 20, uh, 23. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive, in other words, the reality, the fulfillment of the promise in the person of Christ. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law is our guardian until Christ came. Some translations say our, our tutor. It's important to understand the tutor here, or even guardian, is not necessarily carrying the connotation that we tend to think of. A guardian has authority, or the tutor is the one you go to when you're messing up in a class, and they are an expert in that and they teach you, and they help you to grow. But in the Greek context of the tutor, a tutor was something that only the very, very wealthy families had, and the tutor was not the teacher. The tutor was the guardian or the one, the custodian, whose job it was is to take the rich kid from home safely to the teacher, and then safely from the teacher and back home. The tutor had authority. The tutor was essentially like a, a jailer or had them not necessarily, that was not necessarily the nature of the relationship, but it's that kind of authority. It was shared, somebody shared with me after the first service that the note in the RSV Bible says that the tutor, or the word that's used here as guardian, has the same connotation as the bus driver that's taking your kids to school. They're on there, and they just take them to the teacher, and then they take them from the teacher back home. That's what Paul was saying, that the law served. The law teaches nobody. The law points us to the teacher, and we learn from the promises of God. We learn from God himself. We learn from God himself incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ what is righteousness, what is holiness, and what is our hope. And he is our hope. And Paul says in these illustrations, we need to understand the law is not bad. The law is glorious when it is used in its proper way because it serves and helps us to see how beautiful Christ is. And God's promise is. And so we need to recognize and constantly be reminded that our relationship, our spirituality is not based on our performance. It is based on the promise. But there is a place as well for the law. And our lives work. And we rejoice. And we are free. 
when we put things in their proper place and know what they're supposed to do. Let me wrap up with this. A few weeks ago, I made the analogy saying that life or the Christian life is like a hike on the Appalachian Trail. I want to come back to that because I think there is an aspect that that imagery can help us to understand not only what Paul is teaching here, but what is and what is not appropriate in terms of uses of the law. Some of you here, no doubt, and maybe some who are not here because I've been doing this, feel like I may be picking on you because of certain principles and preferences that you have. And that's not the case. The law frees us to make a wide range of decisions in Christ. And so therefore, in any Christ-centered church, there should be a wide range of practices that people engage in. And so people were free to eat what they want or not eat what they want, to drink what they want or not drink what they want, to educate their children the way they want, to practice their politics the way they want. There's a lot of freedom that we have when we recognize the gospel is our identity. Some of you are free to live with your wealth and be wise stewards of what God has given. Some of you are called to be voluntary in poverty. You are free to read King James only or the Living Bible. Well, maybe not, but you are. You can read it, but let's not do theological discussions based on the Living Bible. That's just great for illustration purposes. But anyway, there is freedom, and there are a lot of choices and preferences that we have. And I am not suggesting that you using them, and they are characteristic of your life, that there is wrong. You are free. It only becomes a problem when they become the standard of your life that you measure yourself against your preferences, and even worse, when we measure others based on our preferences. And that's where the division in the body of Christ comes and is ugly, not only to the world around us, not only to those who are participant, but ugliest of all to God himself. What I want you to understand is if this life is like a trip, uh, a, a hike on the Appalachian Trail, those preferences that you have where you are schooled, whether you are a teetotaler or a beer occasionally is okay. They are like the gear that you choose for your hike. The gear itself doesn't make you a hiker or not, and it doesn't dictate whether you're going to be successful on your hike. Some of the best hikers don't have the best gear. And the people who buy the best gear are not necessarily hikers. Ask Bill Bryson and his walk in the woods. You're free. And so are the others in the body of Christ, the others in our church. And it's important that we recognize that so that we are not tempted to be divided or sealed off trying to live up to other people's standards or worse, trying to make people live up to our particular standards. And as ridiculous as it would be to see somebody on the trail to say, you know, I, you seem like somebody I would like, but, you know, I got my backpack from L.L. Bean and yours looks like it's from Land's End, so go away from me. Well, we're going in the same place, but, you know, I have the full above ankle cut boot and you just have the low cut boot, although the tread looks kind of cool, but we can't walk together because our gear is different. That's what we say when we insist upon our preferences in the body of Christ is that we're willing to be divided, not on the gospel, but on secondary issues, and it's foolishness. But we need to be aware, not only of our temptation, 
but the priority and the identity is the gospel itself, not the brand of our gear. And understanding the relationship of the law and the promise will help us not only for freedom, but in unity and in growth and grace. I don't like to do this usually, but I'm going to do it today. I'm going to finish with somebody else's quote. It's from John Stott. And I want you to listen closely because as he finishes his, this, his commentary in this section of this text, his words are better than I could possibly otherwise do. So listen closely here. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested us and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. May the law break every one of us that we would find the joy and the freedom of the promise of God fulfilled in Christ. Father, bless us and thank you for your word. And help us to believe what we profess. Help us to understand the depth and the complexities of your promise that we might see its beauty and live with the joy accordingly. Father, to you all glory as our lives belong to you. We pray in Christ, thanking you that in him we are yours and we are one.